Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Oh, you know what? I didn't play the intro video. We completely messed that up, Jonathan. So here we are. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter. And along with me on the far other side of the screen is Dr. Jonathan Pritchett. And Dr. Jonathan Pritchett, I would sure like for you to take the reins and introduce our guest today that we are so incredibly, incredibly excited about. And honored. I mean, it is an honor to be in the presence of greatness because we have today Dr. David Allen. Come on. The most published Southern Baptist, what, in in history, right? (laughs) Is that true? I think that's right. Not exactly, hey. not exactly, but I published a lot, about 13, 13 books, I think in terms of active uh, Pages. people in the Baptist world. Yeah, now pa- pagination-wise, I'm, pro- I'm up there with Tom Schreiner somewhere. Okay, well, oh, man. well, you need, to make, you need to write more books to make that true so that when someone sees this video a year from now, or two years from now. Yeah. Uh, but he's published a ton of... It, see, this is what people think Paul wrote most of the New Testament. No, Luke, word for word. That's what matters. Right, right, right. right? So, so The word count. The, now, his latest book, of course, is Calvinism, a biblical and theological critique co-edited with uh, Dr. Lemke. And you've you've got a couple of things in here, and then there's a, other uh, authors that contributed. I think... Um, Leighton Flowers. Yeah. Flowers. Yeah, I've heard of that guy. Uh, <laughs> we, I'm paid to say that we like him. Yeah. Um, Brian Abassiano, uh, Ken Keithley, uh, Adam Harwood, William Klein. Man, I that think is ben such a slate. That slate yeah. is fantastic. Ben Witherington's in here. You've got... B-dub-3's in there? Yeah, a Methodist. Oh, in, in a book published oh, by Broadman and Holman, they have know, a Methodist man. there. All right. Well, what let's is get the good back Methodist, to us. though. So, so tell us, that. tell the audience more w- about why we should be so thrilled to have Dr. Allen here. Well, we're th- we would be thrilled to have him anyway. To, he's made in the image of God. Well, and he's also Dr. David Allen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we also want to announce that he is also now our professor of preaching here at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, uh, visiting professor. So we are excited about that. He's going to be teaching our preaching courses and some theology courses. Um, So the Calvinism Haters Club, uh, along with uh, Braxton and myself and Leighton Flowers and Steve I don't hate Calvinists. (laughs) I said Calvinism Haters Club. I didn't say the Calvinists. No, it's just we've, (laughs) we've been getting, according to certain Reformed Baptist apologists, on the internet, we are the anti-Calvinist seminary. Well, so, so well, let's just lean into it. You know, I love it because our Calvinist students uh, uh, love to speak out on social media very openly about that and say, "Hey, these guys may be known for taking these strong stands, but they're but they were cool with us in the classroom." You know, they didn't. Yeah. So anyway, Doctor, and it's the first time most Calvinists get a chance to actually read outside their tradition because many don't. 
Dr. Allen, uh, we were so excited to have you here, as we've said, and um, this moment where we've just announced this relationship, which really means so much to you. Um, oh, it means more to us than it does to it, him, I promise you. <laughs> did, I, did I say it meant a lot to him? Yeah. It meant much it means, to us. It means, That's what I meant to say. And I remember, in fact, to, to emphasize that, I remember we were on the phone talking through all of this. He said something like... Um, well, are you wanting uh, a, a relationship that's as involved as what it sounds like? And I said, well, look, I'm asking for a date, but or I'm here to propose marriage, but if all you'll give me is a date, I'll be happy. So we're definitely getting the better end of that deal. But Dr. Allen, um, we, we are thrilled to have you here, and we know that you are well known also for a particular, uh, a number of things, but one thing that this show has certainly um, discussed quite a bit, both Dr. Bridget and I have had debates um, on the subject, and that is the issue of soteriology and Calvinism. And why has that issue, why did that issue captivate you so much, and why do you write on it and think about it so much? Well, I guess I would say that would go back many years in my early years as a pastor. Uh, you, I, I began pastoring in 1982, and uh, that was before the rise of the new Calvinism or the emphasis of Calvinism that came along with the uh, later into the la into the mid to late 1990s uh, with the uh, uh, explosion of uh, you know John Piper and his works and and uh, others and the neo Calvinism movement. But in a theological sense, people have always wondered about the questions of election and total depravity and is the atonement for everybody or is it limited only to the elect and is grace irresistible or not? And these are, are issues, as you well know, that have been a part of uh, debate in Christian history from the Reformation on. Some of these things were debated prior to that. Limited atonement was not. Everybody agreed with limited atonement until Beza in the late uh, 16th century. But uh, the, a lot of these other things, the nature of election, these kind of things have been debated for hundreds of years. Uh, and then, of course, with the rise of new Calvinism, uh, and as one who was a professor uh, preaching and uh, uh, also but taught aspects of theology as well, uh, I've, I've had constant interaction with people that are Calvinistic in their own theology. Uh, and then I have a personal interest in this subject, particularly in the area of soteriology. And uh, so in the in concept of the nature of the atonement and the extent of the atonement, I was invited years ago, uh, back in, uh, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago, to do a conference called the Whosoever Will Conference. And that was uh, led by Jerry Vines. And a couple of the seminaries were involved in that as well, sponsoring it. And I was invited to speak on the subject of the extent of the atonement. And so I began doing a great deal of work on that topic. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was back along about uh, 2005 or six when I began to work on that topic. And I have just been fascinated with it and have worked on it ever since. And I have done three books related to that subject. Uh, the Whosoever Will book, which I first uh, co-edited with Steve Lemke, appeared in 2010. And then I did a book on the atonement, a biblical, theological, and historical study of the cross of Christ, which has a number of uh, aspects of the extent of the atonement in it. And then finally, well, then I wrote the extent of the atonement actually prior to that. So it's really four books, not three. Uh, 
the extent of the atonement, which was an 840 page tome on that very subject that was published back in 2016. And then finally, as you mentioned, this work today, editing, edited with Steve Lemke on, on the subject of Calvinism. I feel like it's a vital issue, particularly for me, the issue of the extent of the atonement is crucial because there we are very, very close to the heart of the gospel. Well, you know, uh, well, before, yeah, yeah, I just ahead. wanted to say now on the, the, the big book on the extent of the atonement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That one. Uh, people need to understand when you say that you have researched this topic thoroughly and you've got the, the other book on it as well. People need to know that this is how deep that rabbit hole that you, you chased go. Because I was reading the book and I noticed that he made a reference to my friend Hunter Bailey, who grew up down the street from me, graduated with his doctorate uh, in the at the University of Edinburgh, writing about the a, a dissertation that maybe ten people have ever read on on uh, Fraser's view of the atonement. And there it was what? in his book. Yeah, and I was like, how in the world did he dig that up? Because <clears throat> I read it because I felt like he's my friend. I have to, <laughs> you know, yeah. I know the guy. Uh, he's a wonderful pastor out there in uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas. Well, Doctor Allen, but he, I mean, the fact that he dug that up, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's how far. <laughs> down that's comprehensive. You, yeah, he, he found the kid down the street from you, right? Who, who wrote something, uh, but but Doctor Allen, it is always. I, I, I've thought about why is this issue so captivating. Like some people are captivated by. Uh, cults and false religions, some by the demonic, some by um, uh, uh, end times type things, some by uh, supernatural sign gifts and things like that. Why this issue uh, interests me so much, and, and I've thought about it, and I think it's because, and I think many Calvinists would agree with me on this, it's like, if I'm, if, say, you know, I was raised Southern Baptist, um, and let's say I'm walking along next to a Southern Baptist, in a Southern Baptist church, and we agree on uh, so many different things. And let's say we even dis we even agree about the end times and all this. And then when it comes to this issue, an issue which, for all our agreement, it seems like the next step would be easy. He goes off that way, and I go off this way. And what is going on psychologically that two people with so much of the same like software, I guess we could say, would would spit out such different answers? That, yeah. that's, that's what's surprising, and it makes it interesting to me. It is surprising and interesting as well. There's a certain psychology to all of that that nobody's fully figured out, I guess. But these things are so near the heart of the gospel, God's role in salvation, our role in salvation, which our role is simply having faith. God's role is everything else. Um, but it, it is, the, the, from a psychological standpoint, from a personal standpoint, from a sociological standpoint, historically and every other way, it's a fascinating uh, subject. I, I think I know, like when you grow up, see, I grew up, I grew up in my teenage years before I became a Southern Baptist. I was in a Steve Lawson's church at the Bible Church of Little Rock. Yeah. And and um, my friend John Winters was also a Reformed Baptist. He was a pastor of a church and I went there knowing that we didn't agree on that. But I mean, he's my friend, you know. And one of the things that that I think happens is if you have a Reformed Baptist pastor uh, and even if they're non-denominational, Steve Lawson's essentially, you know, like John McCarthy, they're Baptist. But and what's different is they do put a large emphasis on Ed, education in the church and reading from the tradition that I think a lot of churches 
that are not in the, the, the Reformed tradition need to do a better job of as far as the importance of theological education in the local church. Because when you talk to the Calvinists on the Internet um, and you're engaging in these discussions, if they go to a Reformed Baptist church, it's not like they're the person who's the theology nerd that in their church that you found. He's just like everyone else in that church, whereas you're the theology nerd when you're a non-Calvinist, whereas a lot of people in your own church aren't interested as deeply. And I think that the Reformed churches just do a better job on Christian education in the local church. And I think that that's something that non-Reformed churches need to, to get a better handle on. Would you, would you agree with that? I would basically and generally agree with that. Now, that's that, uh, generally, I think that is true. It's certainly not true across the board. Right. But I think generally that is true. Uh, my students through the years that have been Calvinist are generally students that uh, are studious and, and love to read. They look at the history of things. Uh, now, one problem with so many Calvinists is they are monolithic in their reading. They don't read broadly. They only read Reformed literature. They don't yes. read anything, anything else, so many of them. And that's part of the problem because those of us who are not Calvinists are reading Calvinistic literature, but we're also reading the non-Calvinist stuff. And I have, I've said for many years, I've got more Reformed literature, more Puritan literature in my personal library uh, than any Reformed professor in, uh, or a Calvinistic professor in any Southern Baptist seminary, and probably than mo most professors in any Reformed seminary. I don't I've doubt got, it. I've got, I mean, literally, I've got several thousand volumes of Reformed theology, whether it be commentaries or actual systematic theologies or works on theology or works on preaching. I mean, yeah. I've got a huge collection of uh, the Puritans, uh, not only uh, hardback, uh, actual, uh, you know, hardback copies, uh, print copies, uh, but I have a library of, pro I don't know, probably 20,000 Puritans in the Early English Books Online digital library uh, that I have access to, that I've collected. And, uh, you know, for I, I just, um, I've just collected all of this stuff through the years, and I, I try to read broadly in the Reformed world, but I also read outside of that. So many of my Reformed brothers need to broaden their own reading. They need to read more broadly outside of their tradition. That would help them in interaction with people like us who are not in the Reformed tradition and who are not Calvinists. I, I agree. That has been, and I think you, I think that many of them will actually admit that because a lot of them will go to Reformed-leaning seminaries. And of course, the Reformed tradition um, interestingly enough, in the evangelical publishing world with like Baker and Cross, they, they put out a, a lot of literature. But what I don't think people realize, though, is while you see a lot of Calvinist material published, when you read even a lot of conservative evangelical scholarship, though, and I'm not just talking about critical scholarship, but just even other outside of the Reformed tradition, people don't know this, but like in Pauline studies right now, um, you don't find a lot of traditionally Reformed or even especially the Reformed Baptists. Like you see Thomas Schreiner put out works all the time, but you don't really see that tradition cited in the scholarly literature as much as, as maybe had in times past. Because why, why, why is that? Why has 
reformed scholarship, uh, particularly in Baptist, but even just in general, fallen outside of the, the, the broader sweep of like mainstream critical scholarship, uh, even conservative critical scholarship? Well, that's a good question. I don't know that I know the answer to that question, uh, except to say that even the major writers in the field are myopic in their approach to things. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, let me, I give you an illustration. Uh, I'm not going to tell you the name, but uh, a very well-known uh, Calvinist who teaches at a Southern Baptist seminary after the Evangelical Theological Society several years ago, he and I ran into each other at the airport. And I had made a presentation there, and this was after Whosoever Will had come out. And he actually affirms uh, our understanding. He is a Calvinist, but he rejects limited atonement. Uh, he affirms an unlimited satisfaction for the sin of the people. But he, he stood there, and, and again, this is a well-known guy. But he stood there and he said to me, you know, I've never really un fully understood hypothetical universalism uh, and, and the, the, the concept of a four-point Calvinist. He is a four-point Calvinist. He admits right. that. But he, he said, I, I, guess I'm I guess I don't really understand the hypothetical part. And so here I am, a non-Calvinist, explaining to him in the airport his own tradition. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and who he needs to read in his own tradition to be knowledgeable about these things. How John Davenant, for example, a signer, a signatory of Dort, and many others uh, in the history of uh, uh, the re early Reformed movement and into the Puritan era, Richard Baxter, for, for example. And Frazier. many, you know, yeah, and many who... Uh, are in that hypothetical universalism strain, which essentially is a strain that I, that affirms the nature of the extent of the atonement, the extent of the atonement in an identical fashion that we would affirm it, that Christ substituted himself, died for the sins of all people. And uh, there's nothing hypothetical about that. You read, you hear people talk about hypothetical universalism as if somehow his death is hypothetically could apply whatever and they're confused they don't realize that actually uh hu's hypothetical universalists affirm a universal satisfaction for sins just like arminianism affirms that just like non-calvinists who aren't arminians and there are many of those you know people make the big mistake of saying look there are two buckets you got two buckets and they'll ask you, are you an Arminian or are you a Calvinist? Whenever you hear somebody ask you that question or make that statement, you know you're dealing with somebody who, number one, is historically ignorant about it. They're historically unaware that there are more than two buckets. In fact, there are many buckets within non-Calvinism. Uh, for example, uh, what are you going to do with Lutherans? You know, Lutherans are not Arminians and they're not Calvinists. Lutherans are Lutherans. Yeah. And so we've already got more than one bucket. And even with Arminianism, you know, you've got Arminians who affirm 
the eternal security of the believer. There aren't many of them, but there are some who do. Majority of Arminians do not. Then you've got Calvinists who affirm an unlimited atonement. They're probably still in the minority. The majority are high Calvinists. Uh, they follow an Owenic, a John Owen approach to the extent of the atonement. But the problem here, I, I, sorry I got, out on, got off on all that. The issue here is people are not reading fully in their own tradition, but then outside of their own tradition to be aware of what is out there historically. Uh, and that can be demonstrated in the writings of uh, Calvinists as well as non-Calvinists. Well, that was the one, the one thing that I remember after the extent of the atonement came out is it, everyone was hard pressed from the Calvinist tradition to criticize it. So the one claim that you made that they felt like they could challenge you on seemed to be your assertion that Calvin himself was a four point Calvinist. And so that was, seemed to be the only thing that they could latch on to. And I, I'm, I'm still convinced that you're probably right about that. But um, that seemed to be the only thing that anyone ever took issue was that Calvin himself wasn't a five point Calvinist. Well, and only, and only a very few took issue with that because knowledgeable Calvinists know that the evidence is strongly in favor of Calvin uh, being and uh, having affirmed unlimited atonement, never affirming limited atonement. In fact, I spend 50 pages in the extent of the atonement on Calvin's view. And I just give you quote after quote after quote. In fact, I'll just go so far as to say the, the jury is no longer out. It is, there is no question Calvin held to unlimited atonement. And you'll, you'll find very few Calvinists arguing differently because they realize that the evidence is not, is not in their favor. Uh, Paul Hartog's latest book that just came out, the latest scholarly work on this very subject came out last year. Uh, Paul Hartog has a 250-page book on this subject, and he makes it very clear, as I do, John Calvin held to unlimited atonement. So it, it, I, don't even get a, I don't even get much pushback on that from Calvinists. In fact, I don't get much pushback on the extent book, period. They're just trying to ignore it. And yeah. one of the one of the interesting things I've been told, now they won't admit this publicly, but I've had many uh, moderate Calvinists and a few high Calvinists, that means Calvinists to affirm limited atonement, have told me privately that the, the scuttlebutt in their arena is they don't know how to answer it. Theologically, they don't know how to answer it historically. And so they're just trying to ignore it, thinking it'll go away. Yeah, the scuttlebutt from Trinity students, because we actually assigned that book um, in our graduate level <laughs> studies. Uh, and, uh, and what's interesting is Trinity students that are Calvinists, what they think of that book as is because you, oh, you know, there, it's so extensive and even the abundance of direct quotations from Calvinist authors on where they all stood on uh, the atonement, it's their they use your book as a cheat sheet to help them find where they want to quote their people for either, you know, for or against limited atonement. So your book actually functions as a cheat sheet for them to go find what their favorite Calvinists think. <laughs> so, well, I want to jump in here and ask a question that maybe so more... bibliography is a great reason to own that book. If you know, even if you, yeah. you're a hardcore Calvinist, um, here's a question uh, that may bring it a little more down to the layperson's level or someone who maybe is somewhat new to all of this, you know, limited atonement obviously is, is one of the things that you've become most interested in as we've been discussing that. 
And with limited atonement, I know that many non-Calvinists, particularly the ones I've been familiar with in the Southern Baptist Convention growing up, but I think this is a criticism that would be widespread among non-Calvinists, is that the very notion of limiting the atonement uh, just on the face of it seems like a um, impious or insulting in some way to God to think that or to, or to his love in some way like that. And on the other hand, uh, Calvinists, many of them, think of what they're doing as actually um, elevating the importance of uh, the blood of Christ. Yeah, and they use the, the word the, particular redemption. Yeah, to get yeah, away yeah. from the, the language. So, of so do you, what you know? I don't know if this is something that you that you feel like talking much about, but I, I just I think sometimes when I hear <clears throat> uh, people on our side um, rail against limited atonement. I love the philosophical, theological, biblical uh, argumentation. And I personally am motivated, I think, by, hold on a second, limited atonement. And obviously that, that sort of feeling uh, approach to it is not the most important one. But um, what do you think about all of that? Do you think that there's a, a horrible insult being done here? Do you think that uh, Calvinists, even if there is an insult to the uh, blood of Christ in some way, do, do you think that it's important to point out that they think of what they're doing as actually highlighting the importance of the blood? Uh, talk about those sorts of things for a minute. Well, yes, Calvinists think that they're upholding Scripture. They think that they are honoring God. They think that they are reflecting uh, a proper interpretation of Scripture. They do not think that they are dishonoring the love of God uh, by their commitment to limited atonement, nor do they think they are dishonoring the justice of God. Uh, which I think both are problematic for them. Uh, but they, yeah, they think that they are upholding uh, all of these things. For those of us who are non-Calvinists, though, <laughs> you know, uh, who starts out as a believer uh, with the evidence of Scripture affirming limited atonement? Uh, you don't start out that way. You wind up, you have to come to believe in that. But let's just start historically. We need... Calvinists need to be reminded that historically you have limited atonement only in two places prior to 1586. One is in the fifth century, uh, one of the councils, and there was uh, one person there, and I chart this in the book, who toyed with the idea of the atonement is limited, but then that was condemned and he uh, repented and came back. And then you don't have anybody who affirms limited atonement until Gottschalk of Orbay in the ninth century. And he took Augustine and ran him to an extreme and uh, was condemned by three French councils. And, uh, and so you don't, you don't have limited atonement on the block uh, limited Thomas, a new kid on the block. That's you don't really have helpful. Until the 17th century, I'm sorry, until the 16th century, until the late 1500s, uh, Calvin never teaches limited atonement. Augustine did not teach limited atonement. Augustine said Jesus died for the sins of Judas. You can't affirm limited atonement if Jesus died for the sins of Judas. Calvin says Jesus died for the sins of Judas and that Judas was at the table when Jesus said, this is my blood which is shed for you. Calvin makes a point of that. There's no way Calvin held to unlimited atonement. People, unlimited atonement or limited atonement, sorry, there's no way Calvin held to limited atonement is what I intend to say. The problem is with Beza taking things 
on the on the issue of unconditional election and and saying well if god is unconditionally choosing who is going to be saved and who is not then it logically makes sense that the atonement is limited and then that's the trajectory that begins at the toward the end of the 1600s i'm sorry toward the end of the 16th century and into the 17th 17th century but the the problem is i write in my book my first sentence in my chapter in this new book on Calvinism is limited atonement is a doctrine in search of a text. And there is no, no knowledgeable Calvinist will say that the Bible affirms clearly that Jesus died for the sins of a limited number of people. There is no overt statement in scripture that says that limited atonement is a deduction out of scripture. There are, there are a dozen, in fact, 18, verses that speak directly to the extent of the atonement and affirm that it is unlimited. And that's why you have from, that's why you don't have limited atonement in history. Uh, You don't, nobody holds to it until the, the reformation period. And then only after 1586, none of the first generation reformers, including Calvin held to it. So yes, these things, what, what wind up, what happens is, people begin to argue for limited atonement logically. For example, John Owen's famous for trying to make the case that if Jesus died for the sins of everybody, then for those who are non-elect, his blood is wasted. And you'll hear that. You'll hear the wasted blood argument made commonly today. Interestingly enough, Richard Baxter, who is a Calvinist, in every other way except his affirmation of, of, of unlimited atonement, Baxter rejected limited atonement. Richard Baxter took John Owen to task and said that it is virtually blasphemous to say that the blood of Christ is wasted if Jesus shed his blood for the sins of the non-elect. Obviously, Baxter believed Jesus did die for the sins of everybody, the elect well, and the non and that's it's, an important yeah, point. It's blasphemous, according to Romans 3, where where Paul says that God presents Jesus, uh, number one, to be just, and then to declare just. And so, and the just fire, right. Right. So, so to be just is why, so if Jesus' drop of blood saved absolutely nobody, it's still accomplished that, that even if no one ever got saved, God presented Jesus, you know, um, to be just and to declare just. So even if nobody repented and believed the gospel, God still presented Jesus for his own justice. So right. to, to make that kind of statement mm-hmm. as a polemical... It's like when the Calvinists say, uh, your, your God, so like you're saying God tried to save people and failed. And it's like, well, no, what he, he succeeded in what he tried to do, which he tried to offer salvation to everyone, and he offered salvation to everyone. Yeah, so so it's not just to declare just the one who has faith, but it is mm-hmm. to be just. So you're taking away God's own purpose, half of what it says in mm-hmm. Romans 3 about, about that. So, so yeah, it, it's a dumb polemical remark to make that it's, it's kind of <clears throat> like Romans 8 and 9. Where, the, where where Paul's clearly talking about the the Mosaic law, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and he says, you know, th- those in the flesh cannot please God; it is impossible to do so. But the context of that, and then they'll say something like, "And if you repent and believe the gospel, that's pleasing God." And so you can't do that unless regeneration precedes faith and all this. And I'm like, now wait a minute. In context, there, Paul's talking about Torah, 
right? And so you can't please God with respect to the law, Torah, in the flesh. That's not saying you can't repent and believe the gospel, because right. if that's what he said, you just made the law, the gospel, and overturned the entire point of the book of Romans that the gospel is apart from the law. But they, they get into these dumb talking points. No offense, Calvinists, but I think it does collapse into blasphemy. You didn't say the Calvinist was dumb. You said the talking point was dumb. Right. They get into these dumb talking Dr. points. Dr. Allen, uh, <laughs> here's, a, here's a question from somebody. I don't know if you're ready to take some questions, but uh, Andrew uh, Benton says, thank, you, thank, for thank you for that super chat, says, as someone who is exploring both Reformed and non-Reformed positions, what is one book you would recommend for each position that makes the best case for each view? This is a good one. Yeah, there's one. There's right one there. for, for, for critiquing Calvinism. Well, I, yeah, I would argue that that, uh, in terms of from, for critiquing Calvinism from a non-Calvinist, multi-perspective non-Calvinism, the book Calvinist, the recent book here on Calvinism, a biblical and theological critique, is, in my opinion, the most uh, complete and uh, it, it presents all of the issues. It presents all the issues exegetically. It presents all the issues theologically. Uh, it presents all the issues philosophically. It's, I think it's the single best critique of Calvinism on the market today, and I would obviously recommend it uh, for, that, for that purpose. Um, the, you know, the, as far as the, from the Calvinistic side, there are so many. I mean, you know, there are so many books, both historically, that present Calvinism, um, if you're looking to get a feel for that, as well as modern day, uh, there are books on that on that subject. You know, uh, one, one set of books you might read are the books that were published entitled For Calvinism and Against Calvinism. Uh, you might get those those look at those books that's uh, olson olson and horton yeah, yeah right yeah. olson and horton you might get those mm. and kind of get a feel of all of the generally speaking all of the issues uh you might take a look at those two that would that would probably be helpful in terms of trying to uh, evaluate okay where am i in all of this yeah and i think there are a series of uh discussions between ortland and olson online that you can watch while you're going through that right yeah i, I mean I, not I, not made to go with it but they're out there and you can I think so it. yeah i think they're yeah. i think those are available online and mm -hmm. you can kind of get the feel get the picture from from uh uh both of them mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah i I do want to pivot, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna not make a hard segue. This is gonna be a bridge segue to our to. to well, it would have been, but you just drove all over it now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but but I do want to ask you a question uh, because I do want to discuss preaching because that's a that's very important. But I do want to before we get to just preaching uh, questions and comments, I do want to when it comes to preaching doctrine, um, do you think um, if you're a pastor? you're in a non-Calvinist church and you're preaching a text-based sermon like you always promote, um, is it appropriate, say you're going through Romans chapter 9, is it appropriate in a sermon to not only espouse the doctrine you affirm from the text, but also engage in, in even mild polemics or something uh, against contrary or opposing views to your view in the, in the sermon context, or is that better left elsewhere? I would say, yes, it is appropriate, but I would suggest tread lightly. Mm. Uh, 
you know, uh, there are certain key places where you have to do that. You, you got, you have to declare what you have to declare your position. For example, when you're preaching on Romans, uh, I'm sorry, when you're preaching on Hebrews six, one through eight, uh, that famous passage, you have to declare that, uh, you, there, there are five basic views and somebody's got to be wrong. And so, you know, you pretty well have to take a position. Same thing with Romans nine, Romans nine is argued by the reformed to be both corporate and individual in terms of election. Those of us who are non-reformed say, no, Romans nine is corporate only. You don't, you don't have an individual unconditional election advocated in Romans nine. And that, that, you know, that does need to be stated in, in the sermon, if that's what you believe, because the people who affirm that are clearly going to state it. In fact, they're going to say, most Calvinists are going to say, this is not just my interpretation of Romans nine. They're going to say Romans nine teaches unconditional election. Ergo, anybody who doesn't is contrary to scripture. Right. What, what Calvinists are failing to do there is to say my interpretation of Romans nine is is that of unconditional election. Our interpretation of Romans nine is that Paul is talking about um, corporate election. And uh, there's a great history for that. And there's a chapter in this book on Calvinism that addresses that uh, very carefully and very clearly. And so these, yes, there's a place in preaching for bringing in theology, but what we shouldn't do is turn the sermon away from a textual, a text-based exposition, illustration, and application, and turn it into a theological dialogue or a theological monologue. I've done that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've all done that before, and we don't, that's what we ought not to do. But obviously, theology is derived from the text of Scripture. And yeah. so it is okay to preach. All preaching has a theological element to it. There's no way around that. Doesn't the I, Bible say, doesn't the Bible say in Southern Baptist churches, you do that on Wednesday night when you do the <laughs> theological yeah. training. I got into the middle of a sermon on Esther once on a Sunday night and I started doing that. I kind of thought I'm going to, I'm going to go off about this theological issue. And I remember about halfway through that, I thought I want to be, I just want to leave the stage right now, but I have to keep preaching, <laughs> but I want to go. Yeah, this was a mistake. <laughs> I turned this into a, lect- a polemical well, lecture. And then I did it again one time on the road with you. I uh, uh, I was somewhere and you were like, you know, it was awesome until you said that smart stuff. That's when you wrote <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me, let me illustrate, let me illustrate the yeah. error of it this way. This goes back to the Puritans. If you study Puritan preaching, uh, it is still fair to say that Puritans, many Puritans did expository preaching, but it's also fair to say uh, that they did what we would call doctrinal preaching, because if you look at so many Puritan sermons, and I've read hundreds of them, if you look at the sermonic nature of how they structure a sermon, they begin with what is called exegesis, but then they go to what's called doctrine. And then number three, the third part is uses, and that would be our practical application. But if you look at the average Puritan sermon, there's as much or more doctrine than there is exegesis or exposition. There's a little bit of exegesis and exposition. But then what Puritans are doing in their preaching is they are bringing a doctrinal grid 
and they are viewing the text of scripture through that doctrinal grid. And that doctrinal grid for most Puritans is Calvinistic soteriology. And so no matter where they are from Genesis to Revelation, they go from the text into doctrine when the text itself is not supporting what they are attempting to do doctrinally. This is how you can get Puritans like John Howe, whom I love to read, by the way. What a great heart and desire for the salvation of the unsaved. Howe is a great example of how Calvinistic theology is correct in the sense of being passionate for preaching that God desires the salvation of all people and God's calling and begging you to be saved. Uh, many, many Calvinists today shy away from that. Again, they don't know their own history. They're unaware of yep. that Puritans preach that way. And so, but you got John Howe who preach, preaches what, 12 or 15 or so sermons on one verse out of the book of Romans. Yeah. Well, the only way to do that, you can't do that expositionally. You're, 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 <laughs> what you're doing is you're packing in your doctrinal understanding and forcing that on the people. You're extruding that through the text. It, you're, it, you're using the text to extrude that doctrine. That's, and, that's, and, that, and if you look carefully, not only did some of the Puritans do that, but Jonathan Edwards does that. A lot of his preaching is not expository preaching. It's right. doctrinal preaching. Now, John Piper does the same thing. Look at Piper's sermons. Many of his sermons are not expository. Now, I know he would scream bloody murder if he were on this program hearing me say that, but look at his sermons. What he does is he starts out with a text, and then he starts putting in doctrine. He finds doctrine, and interestingly enough, it's Calvinism that he finds oh. in those he wouldn't do and, that. That's against the rules. <laughs> so uh, this is the this is the problem. All preaching is doctrinal, and yes, we should bring in doctrine when the text warrants it. But yeah. we are not to use a text to teach our doctrinal system. And unfortunately, many preachers, in my opinion, in the Reformed tradition, both past and present, are doing that. Now, in addition to being Dr. David Allen, the, the premier Southern Baptist scholar of most of Southern Baptist history, in addition, you're also Coach Allen. So we have, a, we have a lot of pastors who watch our podcast. We have a lot of pastors who are students at Trinity College of the Bible Theological Seminary. And you are Coach. Talk to me about preaching, Coach, and then I'm going to ask you some questions about preaching. So... Let yeah, everyone you know about that. Do you line up preachers on a basketball court and yell at them? Wouldn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Not the worst idea, but. Yeah. Well, last October, I, I began a ministry that I've wanted to do for a long time. I started a ministry called Preaching Coach. Basically, what I do is make the case that, that uh, even professional athletes have coaches. Uh, take baseball, which is my favorite sport. But every baseball team has six coaches. You got a manager and you got six coaches. You got a batting coach and a hitting coach and, you know, you've got base coaches. And so even the best of the best have and need coaches. And pastors need coaches as well. They need work. They need help. They need mentors uh, beyond seminary. Now, many pastors haven't had the privilege of going to seminary. They either... Now, their circumstances are they're bivocational, they can't afford it, or whatever the case may be. But even those that have the privilege of going to seminary, they still need continuing development in the, in the 
ability, their abilities and skills of preaching the word of God. This is what I do. I come alongside pastors and I partner with them and I work with them on their preaching. I work with them on sermon preparation, sermon delivery, how to do illustrations, whatever they want me to work with them on is what I do. For example, I have a client, uh, one of my partners is a pastor in Spain. I've talked about him before. He's in a second pack group, a second meeting with me. He and I worked together for six months. Now we're in our second six months uh, period of mentorship and partnership. And he's preaching through a book of the Bible right now. And what we do is we meet on Wednesday, on Tuesday or Wednesday now, and we talk about his next Sunday sermon. And I help him with structure. I help him with outline. I help him with the introductions and all that. Now, he writes the sermon. I don't write, but we work together on that. I coach him. I've got another pastor at a church, small church, and he wants me to work with him on delivery. And so every week we look at what he's done the previous week. We look at a recording and I talk to him about his delivery. I'm working with him to improve his delivery. So I work on content, delivery, you know, whatever a guy wants me to work with him on, that's what I, what I do. And so, so this, this is the ministry of preaching coach. And we do, yeah. in addition to that, I do uh, podcasting. Now I've got a podcast that drops every Tuesday morning. Uh, I do podcast webinar once a week. And I'm, I'm writing ebooks once a month on some aspect of preaching. Now, all of that's free. There's no cost to mm. that part. You're giving away now, free ebooks once a month? Yeah. Those are, that's yeah. called Patreon. You need a yeah. Patreon. That's patron content. <laughs> <laughs> I do that. But now, the coaching, of course, there's a fee involved, a cost to that because it's personal time. I work with guys. Uh, but anyway, this is what we're doing. And I'm about to develop uh, doing group coaching. I'll do cohort coaching. We're going to take a group yeah. of 10, 10 to 20 guys. And we'll, for three months, we'll talk about how to preach Hebrews or the next time we may talk about how to preach the Psalms. And so that's coming. That's a new thing coming down the road. And, uh, I'll be doing things like that as well. So, so this is not just content, but it's also, it's also presentation and delivery because I know right. like there, there's been a lot of talk why Johnny can't preach and you've heard of stuff like that, you know, but there's a, right. there's a lot of talk right now that, 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 that sermons are either, you're either great at it or mo most sermons are just average or below. And I, I've noticed an emphasis in seminaries everywhere that, that preaching programs are, are being phased out. What's the effect? Why, why can't preachers preach anymore? Well, there is in some cases they're not taught how to do it. They've never been mentored. They never they never had the privilege of sitting under a pastor who was a good expository preacher, and then others have not had the benefit of of being trained in seminary how to do that. Uh, and then, unfortunately, some guys that are trained and then they get out there and they become more enamored. And I, again, I want to be careful about naming names and and that kind of thing. But they become enamored with the church growth movement or uh, uh, preaching that is uh, anything but expositional. It's felt needs oriented. It's five ways to be happy, three ways to love your mother, seven ways to mow your lawn kind of preaching. <laughs> and there's a lot of that junk out there and people's teeth or spiritual teeth are rotting because they're being fed cotton candy. And Dr. So Allen, are you familiar with Stephen Olford? I am indeed. 
Uh, Stephen Olford, I don't know if you know this, used to have a relationship with our school and he taught, uh, taught preaching for us. And we would go, we would send groups to his house. I know, you know, he used to have people go, go out to his house and spend a week yeah. and they'd have to write a sermon while they're there and preach it in front of just, just him and the other students that were there. And uh, what you're doing sounds very much like that just for the modern age. Yeah. Well, it is partly Stephen Olford and I, I, I invited Stephen Olford to teach or to speak at the first uh, preaching conference I did at the Crystal College when I was there back in 1999. And then uh, uh, I followed him through the years and uh, love his heart, his, his heart for preaching, uh, recommend his book, Anointed Expository Preaching. It's one of the better books on, on uh, preaching. And so, yes, well, that's, very, a, that's high. That's a high endorsement coming from you, yeah. but it is Stephen well, Olford. Yeah. His book is very good. Now I would differ with him on a couple of things. One thing I differ with him is Stephen Olford was in that generation where, where, uh, they wanted to alliterate all sermon outline. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can but, I tell you something? You mentioned Jerry I, Vines a while ago. So right. I show up, I show up at another seminary, uh, taking classes there and uh the preaching professor wasn't going to be there for this on-site thing and the normal professor and so they had this other guy in who was a much he's a guy about my age or a little older and he uh and he said through the thing he said i just want you to know i hate alliteration alliteration is satanic you don't want anything to do with alliteration it's just old it's stupid and all this but they were bringing in for one day jerry vines to do a talk and Jerry yeah. Vines came in and with that professor sitting there, of course, Jerry Vines didn't know. And he starts talking about now you'll want to alliterate your sermons. That's a good way to remember. Well, I've had many, I've had, I've had lots of conversations with Jerry Vines uh, uh, about preaching. I, I was called to preach under Jerry Vines. I was raised. Really? Yeah. Western Baptist Church, Rome, Georgia, 1968 to 1974. He was my pastor. And my those teenage years there, basically for me, for 1970 to 74, I grew up listening to Vines preach. And he has marked my style of preaching more than anybody else. Yeah. And uh, so well, now, I preached then, with him at Dolphin Way yeah. Baptist Church, not when he was oh, yeah. pastoring there, but when I was there for a conference with him. But my the first church I pastored was in Jacksonville, Florida, and they had the uh, pastors conference there at First Baptist right. every year, and he was always right. there for that, and he was always around, and so right. I kind of you know I was influenced by him as well. I think, yeah. Well, he's a great one to be influenced by when it comes to preaching. But you know, I've told him, and he agrees with this. He won't say this publicly, but I can say it. But he agrees with me that alliteration is easily forced. And we don't need to, it'd probably be wise not to try to alliterate every sermon. But as he told me, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, we, how, yeah. You want to take some other questions before we go? We've got four more questions. I'd love to sure. get off here before we let you go. And these yeah. might get a little bit more theological. I know you're fine with that. Um, Absolutely. Uh, now, the New Testament theologist, who is a very well adept uh, scholar that we are friends with, um, who is not a Calvinist, says, what does Dr. Allen think about the Wesleyan reading of John 1-9 and prevenient grace? Do you happen to have any thoughts right off the top of your head there? Oh, wow. All right. Tell me what John 1-9. <laughs> Jonathan, have you pulled it up yet? Does he mean 1 John or does he just mean the, uh, John, the, the, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into yeah. the world? 
I think that's the verb. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that he thinks that's a reference or uh, that's, I'm sorry, Wesleyans might, some Wesleyans read that as a reference to prevenient yeah. grace or something. Okay. Is the light coming into the world like that a reference to prevenient grace, Dr. Allen? Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Uh, I don't, I'd have to go back and look at that. Uh, I'm aware that Wesleyans do generally argue that point. Uh, I do think, I do think that there is, there is some concept of a, an enabling grace, whether we want to call it prevenient grace or not. And by the way, keep in mind, prevenient grace has an ancient uh, history to it. Uh, Augustine talks about prevenient grace. Many mm. of the reformed outside of Armenia, are, many people think, well, Arminius invented prevenient grace. That's totally false. <laughs> uh, many of the reformed talk about prevenient grace as well. Uh, it's just that they also talk about uh, grace in the sense of irresistible grace or what they would call effectual grace. Grace yeah. that is given that effectually results in the uh, regeneration of a person. And generally they right. argue that regeneration precedes faith. Uh, and then you're able to have, you are enabled, you are granted the gift of faith and you are enabled to believe. Uh, that's what Calvinists uh, do believe. But uh, clearly we're not Pelagians and we're not semi-Pelagians, though semi-Pelagianism is also there's a lot behind that. There's way more to that story. That's a misnomer, as I've argued in other articles and other places, including uh, the back of this book. There's a little addendum on that subject of uh, semi-Pelagianism. Uh, but clearly there is some form of grace that is enabling. And, you know, whether that's prevenient grace in the way it is defined by, Cal by non-Calvinists, by Wesleyans, or whether it's more an enabling grace that would be broader, that would be a definition that would be found in the broader non-reformed world and not limited only to the Wesleyan Methodist tradition. I'm not, again, I would have to t kind of take a look at that. Yeah. But well, I, I want to just, I just want to tell the New Testament theologist, he has a cat named Barclay, right? And it's named <laughs> after a guy who wrote a book about Paul and the gift and I recommend you go read that because he's just rehashing things that De Silva wrote, and, and but gives a more historical overview of it and things that Ziba Cooper. Right. W w this talk about prevenient and 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 irresistible. These are nothing burgers. Go back to the socioeconomics of Clayton, patron-client reciprocity, and get all the goofy talk out of your conversations about grace. We, uh, Jonathan, anyway. we've been working on Jonathan to get him to come out of his shell. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I've through the years yeah grace is uh, prevenient grace is just like saying grace because i mean it's that which i mean it's before mm -hmm. right that, the grace that goes before you're right so okay nobody the irresistible grace is also prevenient grace. so you're not saying it well, I go point. that's the point it's grace that goes before so even irresistible grace is still prevenient right yes and it's all, but and then they get it. See, this is this is the things about prevenient grace. Is what you were saying we got about the, on the a atonement being a a, a a doctrine and hunt for a text, right? The, yeah. The, right. The, that's a doctrine the, in search of a text. In, in search so, of a text. Okay. Well. Okay. I'm Arkansas. Something like that. Yeah. Do right. All right. It's the same thing with regeneration preceding faith. Right. 
these are ideas because the the London Baptist Confession that copied from the Westminster Confession, these are ideas what they would call, uh, if they were honest, good and necessary consequences of Scripture. They're not Scripture. And so, but my problem there is I understand that the Trinity is a good and necessary uh, consequence of the information of Scripture. But you can't just take that and run crazy with it so that every idea you have in your theological tradition that no one outside that tradition affirms. Oh, yeah. Well, our scholar friend, the New Testament theologist, says, JP, colon, blah, 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 socioeconomics, blah, blah, conservative <laughs> politics, blah, blah, cat fights, blah, blah. And all that is important. All that is important. Yeah. But I- well, Dr. Allen, here's another question for yes. you. Um, how do you... <laughs> This might be, well, first of all, there's one that was just on the screen I should get to first. I think they're just asking if you're a synergist or not. Yes and no. <laughs> oh, great answer. That, that's a difficult uh, question to answer without saying yes or no, because number one, regeneration is a monergistic act. So all, all Orthodox Christians on the issue of regeneration are monergists. Because regeneration is the work of God, period. Yes. But how is it that regeneration occurs? Well, the act of regeneration is monergistic in that it is a work of God. But God has annexed a condition for salvation and regeneration to occur, and that condition is faith. And furthermore, Scripture has identified faith is not a work. Hmm. Now, this is where the Calvinists err because they want to shackle all non-Calvinists with this idea of if, if, if human faith is involved in salvation, then that's a work and therefore it detracts from the glory of God. That's false. That's not the case at all. Faith is not a work and that's the whole point of scripture. All of what Paul talks about, faith is not a work. That is a reformed construct. It's not a biblical construct. A faith is the conduit and the condition by which God has said salvation occurs. You're not saved unless by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And therefore, uh, if you want to say, is there anything that we do? Well, if having faith is is, is defined as you doing something, then yes, there's an element of synergism there. But the same is true to the Calvinist because regeneration is monergistic, but then God gives you the gift of faith in their system, but you still believe. And so there is an element of synergism there, even when you don't want to say that there is. Oh, and that's and, what, and, and, yeah. And in sanctification, yes, you know, yeah. In sanctification, even under Calvinism, you hear a lot of waffling on synergism versus monergism because they have to, they have to become synergists and they have to borrow from the free will, the libertarian free will, so that they can't, uh, you know, get rid of some uncomfortable uh, instances that happen in the life of a believer that still falls victim to sin. So here's the, here's the way I answer this question, because this, the, the question whether or not Dr. Allen or Braxton Hunter or Leighton Flowers or anybody is a monergist or a synergist can only operate in a framework of mistaken underlying assumptions, right? Because no Christian believes, like you said, that we can born again ourselves or regenerate ourselves, right? No Christian believes... Can't that, resurrect myself, glorify right, myself, deliver myself to heaven. 
right? We cannot we cannot sustain our own existence in the intermediate state. Resurrect our own bodies at the uh, you know at the new at the Perseid. We can't we can't sustain our existence in all of eternity. We can't do any of those steps. We can't declare can't even ourselves. sustain our own existence. We can't even declare ourselves justified. That's monergistic too. God does all of these things. So what they are confusing is what occurs inside. We can't elect ourselves or any of that. It's all monergistic in the sense that these are all acts that God does. They are confusing salvation and what happens in salvation with conversion and conversion and salvation are different things you can talk about them in different ways i'm sitting here watching dr allen enjoy watching you isn't he a treasure dr allen <laughs> he is indeed yes he is <laughs> so you have well, to accept the false premises of the calvinist arminian spectrum which traditionalist or provisionist or whatever the they reject that whole thing since Eric Hankins wrote his article. And, and we never go back to Hobbes. Southern Baptists don't do that, right? There's speaking of buckets. And so, look, these questions about monergism and synergism only make sense within a spectrum of Augustinian theology that includes Arminianism in the West. Right. And there's all kinds of ways to talk about this outside of that spectrum. All right, yeah, so the answer is, is both. Or neither, yeah. or who cares? Yeah. Dumb question. It's, Next, it's a very difficult to, a question to answer. Right? No, I'd be happy to read. To pick, I, Monergism I, is a made-up word, and synergeho is a word. The synergism is a word that Paul uses. Stop several shouting times. at the internet, Pritchett. Just wanted to put <laughs> they, that out there. The, the fans have started calling him Jonathan Preachit. <laughs> but uh, all right, so I can read this if you want me to. It's but it's yeah, uh, I got to pull it too. Okay, Romans five. Uh, 18 through 19. How do you interpret Romans 5, 18 through 19? Pritchett, would you like to read it for the audience? Yes, I'm going to read from the, the, the Christian the Standard Message Bible. Bible, which yeah. you wholeheartedly endorse. You participated in that, right? I did. I was, on the, uh, I was the vice chairman of the committee that constructed the translation of the CSB. Yes, I, I, I love it so much more than the Holman. Yes. Thank you for yeah. fixing the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible with this wonderful update yeah you bet <laughs> yeah so then as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone that's uh, the question is probably how do you get out of universalism at that text it's a yeah the the issue there the way you get out of universalism is number one scripture clearly denies universalism <laughs> speaks against universalism so in many other places. So number one, this text, whatever it means, can't mean universalism. But the answer to that is a style of argumentation that, that uh, is Paul is engaging in here, where all of the middle principles in the syllogistic reading are not overtly stated. I discussed this. This is discussed in the Extended Atonement book. It's discussed in this book on the atonement. Uh, and I think I also in my chapter discussed that even in here, but I know it, I know it's in this book, uh, here on the atonement, but basically, uh, what, what Paul is saying is notice that there is one who dies for all. And then by virtue of that act, there is now be careful here. There is potential justification for all if they would believe. Now, Paul has already identified the necessity of faith uh, for the reception of salvation. The benefits of the atonement do not accrue 
to anyone who doesn't believe in Christ. Now we're talking about adults here. We're not talking about infants who die in, you know, in infancy. Take that off the table. We're talking about uh, people who are of age, mentally and morally, to decide for or against Christ. And so the point is that Romans 5, 18 and 19 is making is there is a provision of atonement for all people that that counteracts the fact that all people have sinned. So everybody has sinned. There's a provision of atonement for everybody that has sinned. And therefore, all people who meet God's condition of reception of the benefits of the atonement, which is faith in Christ, that's the condition. You meet that condition and you will be justified. That's the decree. That's what God decrees is all who believe will be saved. That's a decree of God himself. God's made it clear that by grace we are saved through faith. It's just that that element is not being being overtly stated by Paul. So the text does not teach universalism at all. The text does teach that there is a provision for salvation and thus justification for all people who meet God's condition of salvation, which is repentance and faith, or or which is faith in Christ. Yeah, I want to make two follow-up points with that as well. 18 and 19, if you you start in verse, uh, what is it, verse 12, uh, and you go all the way to 21, uh, 18 and 19, smack dab in the middle, it's chiastic structure, right? Mm. And, you know, A and A, B, B, and C, C in the middle. So you can look at it that way. So 18 and 19 hang together. If you're going to reject... Wait a minute, that's a little bit interesting. Just thumbnail that. For the audience, a chiasm or a chiastic structure is where the author has created the document or a section of a document in such a way where there's like a ziggurat, or not maybe a ziggurat, but a a pyramid shape or maybe an X. Hourglass. Okay, yeah, that's more like it. And so like in Acts, for example, you might have the sermons of Peter on one side, the first half of Acts, and then the sermons of Paul might correspond in some way. There's thinking like that. So go ahead, Pritchett. Yeah, and so this is how if you're... Reverse parallelism, a form of reverse parallelism. That's what chiasm is. Right. And and if you are going to reject universalism from this passage, which I agree with Dr. Allen, you should. It's a dumb idea. Uh, you also have to reject imputed guilt. Because those those hang together. And so it, it, you're talking about the one trespass resulting in everyone, you know, condemnation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's not automatic either and dr harwood talks about this uh better than i could in, in his in uh, i think it's the spiritual condition of benefits it probably in a systematic yeah because he's well. gonna hurt you're guilty for your you're, you're right. born with original guilt nature or you're built born with a sin nature but not a guilt yeah he nature. disputes shriner on this uh, point yeah, yeah. because 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 and your dad does too and your dad's roman commentary which he referenced because there's a a ratification that you follow after adam's pattern right and so if you're going to say that that if you're going to reject universalism, you also need to reject the imputed guilt because otherwise the parallelism falls apart. But here's how you understand this. There's a clause in verse 12 that helps you out here. And even Thomas Schreiner had to admit that the Augustan reading is trash. 
Because the reason why everyone sins is not because they're born with a sinful nature, it's because they're born with a deathful nature, because sin reigns in death. And, and Adam all died. Paul repeats that 1 Corinthians 15, 22. But he's saying that here as the death spread, and that's how all sin. Mm-hmm. So you have a sin nature because you're born with a death nature. You're born under the curse uh, outside of the garden. And so when you participate and follow after the sin of Adam, even if you don't sin in Adam's likeness, another thing that that blows a hole in the Augustus from this very passage. So you got to be very careful how Paul is articulating it. There, you don't make mistakes on either side of the universalism or the the imputed guilt. The reason why that everyone has sinned except for Christ since Adam is because of the death that spread to all men, and that's how the East has in, exegeted verse 12 since forever that's why they have they have ancestrals instead of original anyway that just and that's because the, yeah that's because the orthodox church reads greek and they recognize that augustine blew it on on romans 5 12 because he didn't know greek very well and he's looking at latin uh and he he makes a huge mistake there but now here's the other thing that needs to be stated even within the Reformed community, the issue of inherited guilt, of Adam's inherited guilt, that's debated. That's not a monolithic viewpoint, even in Reformed theology. It's probably the majority viewpoint, but the if you look at Reformed theological history, there are many within that history that reject the concept of uh, imputed guilt, Adam's guilt imputed to us. Yeah, that, Thomas Thomas Schreiner had to the 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 Baptist Faith and Message 2000 said it better than anyone in in modern church history. You inherit a, a nature and environment inclined towards sin. That, but Thomas Schreiner tried to find guilt in there, and Adam Harwood took him to task. And I think Dr. Yarnell did too over that because it's that's not what the Baptist Faith and Message affirms. There's nothing about you inher- you receive a, a nature and environment, and I think that's the best language possible to understand. This passage. By the, by the way, just for fun, go read the Baptist Faith and Message article on man, which I think is article number five, and there, uh, uh, there, unlimited atonement is actually affirmed. Now, this drives my Calvinist friends batty, who my Calvinist friends who believe in limited atonement, it drives them batty. There, yeah. in the in the section on the work of Christ, there is nothing stated either way about the extent of the atonement. But in the doctrine of man, if you read that statement about the doctrine of man, there is a statement in there that affirms unlimited atonement. It's pretty hard to get away from. But How nobody did Moeller let that one through? Nobody wants to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, Dr. Allen, this has been really enjoyable, and we want to have you back, of course, and so excited that you are now in some measure a Trinity man, and we are excited to have you. It's one of the great joys of my ministry now to uh, to have you as a friend and colleague. And I really enjoy the comments that you uh, have enjoyed and learned from the comments that you've shared today. And um, hopefully there'll be some resources there at least that people can uh, sink their teeth into. And it seems from the chat that there is a good mix of people who are not novices by any means and some people who are just kind of coming into these waters and so I think there was a little something here for everyone, and I really appreciate you coming on. Is there anything you'd like to yeah, tell promote them can, or mention yeah, or discuss? Tell them where for, they can find you on the Internet. And we have, well, I should say, we have the Preaching Coach website linked in the description, right. as well as your Amazon Books page. 
yeah, you can, uh, yeah, my preaching coach website, preachingcoach.com would uh, link you to all of my, my books and other things and some of my other articles. Uh, follow us on Twitter, uh, on uh, Preaching Coach. We're on Twitter. We've got a Facebook page there as well that they can follow us. Uh, get on there and uh, get our newsletter. It's free. Just fill out the little bottom of the uh, the, the uh, uh, front page, uh, head page, lead page there of the website. Uh, homepage is what I'm trying to say. And at the bottom of that homepage, you can click and uh, give us your information. We'll send you that digital newsletter on a regular basis. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I would encourage you to do that. I put a lot of things up there related to uh, uh, to preaching. And uh, so, uh, uh, you know, want to be able to uh, be of an assistance uh, any way that I can to any of those out there who are preachers, Bible teachers, Christian leaders, and uh, make a make an effort to serve you any way uh, any way that we can. Well, that's fantastic, and uh, Dr. Allen really enjoyed this time, and Pritchett, I know you enjoyed this time. I love it, and I want to give one more plug to the book. That this is the new book, Calvinism: A Biblical and Theological Critique. But this is not the first book you've edited with uh, Dr. Lemke because Trinity students who take Dr. Chatham's eschatology course know that you have a book on eschatology and premillennialism I, with Dr. I Lemke. Do. That's correct. We co-edited that, and that was a book that came out of a conference on the return of Christ by a premillennialist, pre-tribulational premillennialist, and that's a very good book. And uh, there are a lot of great chapters in that book, and I'm delighted to know that you all are still using that. But yes, Dr. Lemke and I also co-edited that book, as well, of course, as co-editing Whosoever Will, which was the first book on Calvinism that, that I had anything uh, to do with. Now, I'd be delighted to come back with you guys and talk on anything related to either preaching or uh, Calvinism, uh, or specifically limited atonement. Uh, we might want to uh, do a do a thing more in depth on this just the subject of limited atonement. Let's get into issues of the well-meant gospel offer. Why yes. it is that we hold to limited atonement can't legitimately have a well-meant offer, uh, and what that means, what the entailment of that is in terms of preaching, missions, and evangelism. And uh, we could talk about some of the key things that uh, go a little deeper. Uh, if you're, I, I suspect your audience is interested in that. So I'd be honored to come back, talk to you about any of those kind of things, or we can talk about uh, aspects of preaching, anything you want to talk about there as well. Well, well we'll I do want that. To know, when we'll, is the, when we'll, is the eschatology debate coming back? When, when, when are we, I mean, given the state of the world right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Seems like this is when it should this happen. Is when the, yeah, when, when is that debate going to heat up again? Is, isn't it due? You know, that's a good question. The the eschatology issue was big time in the 1970s when I was in seminary from 1978 to 1981. You know, the uh, late great planet Earth came out in 72 or 73. Yeah, 88 reasons and, why Jesus comes yeah, back. Yeah, that was 1988, right. So nowadays, though, and part, I'll tell you part of the reason for that, part of the reason for that is the rise of uh, Calvinism in the evangelical world because the vast majority of Calvinists are are uh, amillennialist from an eschatological standpoint. They don't believe in premillennialism. Now they don't know how to deal with, with Revelation chapter 20, as John MacArthur is prone to point out to them. You know, MacArthur is of course a 187 point Calvinist, or that's, that's an extreme. <laughs> he's, 
He's not that far. He is a Calvinist. He is a five-point Calvinist. He's very strong on his Calvinism. Uh, but MacArthur is also a premillennialist yeah. who is very critical of amillennialism. So you do have some Calvinists out there like him who reject amillennialism. But so many of the young guys that I deal with, both students and when I was interviewing, uh, when I was the dean of the School of Theology and interviewed new faculty for Southwestern, young faculty that were Calvinistic or moderately Calvinistic in their theology, uh, they just would tell me, you know, I don't really know what I believe about eschatology. I'm just Sounds thinking, like us. You know, uh, and there's this idea that we don't we don't want to be premillennial, pre-tribulationalist. That's just crazy. Uh, but actually, there's a strong case, both historically and theologically, to be made for premillennial eschatology. Well, I was certainly right. My father has a book on this, two books on the subject, and co well, commentaries of Daniel and Revelation. And he, I was raised to be a premillennial, pre, so pre, you don't eat post toasties, as Geisler used to say. <laughs> but uh, do, uh, listen, Doctor Allen, this might be encouraging to you. Jacob Overstreet here says. Haha, ha, I'm teaching soteriology on Sunday night at church and Revelation on Wednesday night. I've been reading a lot of Dr. Allen lately. Oh, can't do that. Thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. Thank you, Jacob. I appreciate that very, very much. Well, Thank we will you. have you back on to talk about those things because really that getting into some of the meat of those things will really be exciting to our audience and um, um, and, and that'll be good. And we want to have you back really soon, as soon as you'll let us have you back. And we are we excited just, to have you at Trinity. It's going to be a great, a great relationship. And Pritchett, what else do you have to say before we let him go? I have to say that this, I think that the, if you want the single best theological education with professors you like and have heard of before. That's the truth. For the ability to do it from the comfort of your own home. And finish debt free. And finish debt free. And if you want to stick with Trinity on through, you can. If you want to take our degrees and transfer to one of our partner schools, uh, you can do that too. Um, but you can't do better than Trinity College of Bible Theological Seminary, folks. And with Dr. Allen, we have just surpassed all others without <laughs> question now. So I'm excited. He's all we needed. Yeah, he's all we needed. <laughs> so, Amen. Thank you so much for partnering with Trinity. Thanks for coming on today. We'll yeah. have you on as often as we can. Well, and as often yeah, as you just send me a calendar invite and I'll put it down and we'll we'll do it again. But I'm happy to be a part of, of a visiting faculty member there uh, to uh, do some uh, teaching for you guys. Glad to partner uh, with you and uh, thankful for that for that opportunity. All right, Dr. Allen. Well, God bless you and we'll see you and everyone else next time on Trinity Radio.